It is Mother's Day, so it's great to see so many of you here on our campus. I want to welcome everybody joining us online as well. And we do want to wish all the moms a happy Mother's Day. And we hope that being here on our campus today um, is part of your special day. But I also want to say that I know today can be tough, um, especially if you've lost your mom uh, recently, maybe this year or in the last few years, that every year on this day it can be tough. And I want you to know that I'm going to be specifically praying for you today that maybe you can draw from some of those memories, but then more importantly, that God would be the one that sustains you in a very real way and that you can sense that today. And then I also know that today can be tough uh, for those of you who want to be a mom, but for whatever reason, up until this point, um, the Lord has not answered that prayer for you. I want you to know I'm gonna be praying for you today and I'm gonna join you in that prayer. And that between now and then, we're going to claim by faith that God is going to answer that prayer for you, and you will get to celebrate the joy of that one day. And then, honestly, I have kind of thought for years that maybe on Mother's Day, we should just kind of call it Women's Day. Because, lady, the truth, ladies, the truth of the matter is all of our lives are better because of you. All of us who are men, we know how much of a train wreck our lives would be without you in it, okay? So all of the women who are here today, can I just say, as your pastor, we honor you, we thank God for you, and we're so grateful for you and all of the things that you do every single day that probably uh, don't go as noticed as they should be. So thank you. And I am grateful that you're here with us today. Now, if you're a guest and you're just jumping in today, um, again, we're honored that you would spend part of your day with us. Let me tell you what we've been doing. Uh, taking a look at Jesus's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's one sermon, and we're kind of just picking it up uh, one week where we left off the next, and we're kind of letting the passage that we look at from one week to the next really give us the focus of what we're going to talk about. So let me give you the title of today's message and uh, where we're picking it up today. Again, you'll see we're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 42. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, um, you can do that. But if you don't, that's all right. We'll put all the verses up here for you. And the title, as you can see, of today's message is Countercultural. And Chad and I were talking this week. I told him, I think we could have called this entire series Countercultural because that's really what the Sermon on the Mount is. I mean, Jesus is speaking to some things that were pretty much accepted as truth. And he's saying, listen, that's not the way it is at all. And he's going to speak towards the heart of God. He's going to speak as an authority, and he's going to help us see what God actually wants from our life. And what we're seeing in the Sermon on the Mount is oftentimes that goes against our culture today. So what we're going to see today in this passage we're going to look at is that truth. It's very counter to how a lot of us have probably been told to think about things. And I want you to see that it was also counter to the first audience as they heard it back then. So there's some message notes inside your bulletin. Go ahead and find those, get those ready. We're gonna jot down a few things. Again, if you're new, we do that because it helps us remember, which then makes it more likely that we'll put them into practice. And if you're joining us online, you can access those notes right here at vaughnforest.com. So I've got a passage. We're gonna look at it in three parts. There's a corresponding application for each part in your notes. We'll talk about a few other things along the way uh, that you might wanna jot down as we talk about what it means to actually be counter- Cultural. So let's look at the first part of this passage today. Again, starting in verse 33 of Matthew chapter 5. Here's what Jesus says. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. If you were here last week, I mentioned this. All capital letters does not mean Jesus is shouting. The New American Standard translates this in a way where I think it's helpful that if it's a verse from the Old Testament, it's in all capital letters. And so when you see that, no, Jesus is referencing a verse from the Old Testament, which is why he says, you've heard it said, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows 
to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all. That's really the focus of this first part of the passage. Jesus is going to talk about oaths, vows, promises, not making them. So don't make an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the great city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. So before we get to the application, let's paint a picture of the backdrop for why Jesus is talking about this today. First of all, the Pharisees were not focused on whether or not someone should make vows, but rather the particular formula that was used in making a vow. Again, if you're jumping in for the first time today, the backdrop for the Sermon on the Mount is the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders. They spoke on behalf of God. They were the only ones who had access to God's word, and they were using that to oppress people. They were making up rules that had nothing to do with God's word. They were holding people accountable to those rules and then punishing them when they would not follow them. And Jesus is continuing to attack their line of thinking and and expose it for what it is, the lies that they are perpetuating. And he's doing this once again with vows. So Pharisees had constructed this entire world that had nothing to do with whether or not people should be making a vow. It had more to do with how they were actually going about making a vow and the formula, the words, the semantics, the sentence structure that someone was using when they were making a vow. So they would kind of unpack this further. Second thing I want you to see is they had a list of permissible formulas and they added that only those formulas which included God's name made the vow binding. So think about this for a second. They've created this entire system. Most people are not educated. They don't know what God's word says. And they're finding themselves in situations, whether it be in the marketplace or in some type of legal situation or setting, where they have made a vow, a promise, a transaction, but one little tic-tac-y thing was missed. They hadn't used God's name. And so now the Pharisees are like, well, that's just not binding. It doesn't hold up. Nevertheless, the Old Testament has a lot to say about not using God's name in this way at all. So again, they've constructed a system that's oppressive. They've constructed a system that's benefiting them, and it's taking advantage of God's people. And yet, once again, what makes this so bad is they've convinced everybody that this is actually from God. So then the third part of this is that if you made a vow without using God's name, you didn't have to worry about keeping it. Well, you can imagine how convenient this was then for the Pharisees, who would act like they were doing some type of transaction, maybe some type of legal setting, but because they knew the rules, they were working the rules to their advantage, and they were making promises that they were then going back and saying that they didn't have to keep because they had not used God's name in the making of the vow. So let me tell you what Jesus is going to do. The first thing Jesus is going to do is point out how ridiculous all of this is. He's pointing out how ridiculous all this is because there's not really ever a way that you can't use God's name, okay? Jesus is going to show them that no matter how hard you try, you can't avoid some type of reference to God or his name. Did you notice in the passage where Jesus said, listen, I mean, even if you're making the vow by heaven, that's where Jesus dwells. If you're gonna make the vow by earth, that's kind of his footstool. If you're going to make the vow by the city, well, that's the city, Jerusalem, of the great 
king. If you want to make a vow by your head, I get it. It's your head. It's attached to your shoulders. But guess what? You can't control how many hairs are on that head and whether they go black or white or fall out. Can I get an amen, gentlemen? Okay. That's what Jesus is saying. Okay. Look, I get it. Anytime you want to speak to something and you think you've omitted God from that, Jesus is saying God's everywhere. God owns everything. God is all powerful. And no matter how hard you try, there's not a way that you can avoid having God's name attached to a promise or a vow. A particular formula Jesus wants them to see does not determine the legitimacy of a vow. Once again, the Pharisees are focused on the external. In this particular case, how you actually go about structuring your sentences, the semantics of what you say, the appearance of how you are heard. And Jesus says that has nothing to do with it at all, that the legitimacy of your words comes from the integrity of your heart. That once again, the Pharisees are going after what everybody sees and what everybody hears, and Jesus will pierce right through that and say, it's all about what's going on in your heart. Are you speaking words out of a sincerity of heart? So here's the application I want you to jot down from the first part of our passage today. When we are people of our word, vows are not needed. When we're people of our word, vows aren't needed. When we say what we mean and we mean what we say. When we say we're going to do something and we follow through and we do it. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Sometimes in our home, one of our boys will will kind of over-exaggerate, over-emphasize a little bit. Like, no, 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 I promise. No, no, I really mean it. And I begin to wonder, what's going on here? Or it's like when you use the phrase, well, to be honest with you, doesn't that call into question other things you say, okay? So it's this idea that when we're speaking from a heart of integrity, we don't have to overly emphasize. We don't have to promise. We don't have to exaggerate. It reminds me of some friends that we made years ago in the wonderful nation of Slovakia. So if you ever get a chance to travel to Eastern Europe and go to Slovakia, you should do so now. You may think, Slovakia, isn't that half the country? Like, isn't it called Czechoslovakia? Well, it used to be. So it used to be Czechoslovakia. And then in the early 90s, that became two separate countries. So now you got the Czech Republic and you have Slovakia. Back in the early 2000s, Morgan and I would go to Slovakia in the summer, and we would take a bunch of college students with us to teach English to high school students. Again, wonderful people, and it was an amazing thing that we would do, again, every summer. And and the reason why these high school students were learning English is because that was key to their future success. That if you wanted to, you know, get a job one day, you wanted to succeed in your career, you needed to be fluent in English. And so all over Slovakia, you could go to English camps during the summer. And this particular ministry that we would partner with did English camps every week during the school year. But in the summer, they would launch a, a, a year's worth of English camp from, from this Um, and a year's worth of English clubs, rather, from this particular camp. And of all of the English camps that you could attend in Slovakia, theirs was the only one that had real Americans. That was us. We're the real Americans, okay? So it made recruiting for this mission trip really easily, really easy. It's like, can you talk? Yes, sign up, you'll do great. All right, so that's all you had to do, right? Can you speak English? Even you can speak poorly. So we'd go over there, And uh, we would try to talk about the things of God and talk about God's word and talk about Jesus through the English lessons. And this was important because this was really the first generation to grow up where uh, religious freedom existed in Eastern Europe. So atheistic culture, not a good understanding of God or Jesus or God's word. So it was an amazing ministry opportunity. 
So one day, I'm teaching my English class with my, my translator named Nick. I think his name was Nikolai, but we all called him Nick. And so Nick, probably about mid to late 20s, um, lived in Slovakia his entire life. He spoke incredible, incredibly good English. And the lesson was on qualities of a friend. So I'm going through and I'm teaching the qualities of a friend. So I'm talking about kindness and compassion and understanding and, and all of the things that we would associate with friends. And Nick is translating into Slovak and we're trying to help them learn how to say these English words. And I get to the word dependable. And I say dependable and Nick just stops. And if you ever taught with a translator, you get into a little bit of a rhythm. Like you say something and they say something. And so when I said dependable and Nick didn't say anything, I kind of just froze for a second. I looked at him. And he looked at me, and in English, he said, you know, we just don't really have that word in Slovak. And I said, interesting. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you have to understand that in Slovak culture, if you say you're going to do something, then you do it. And if you think there's a reason why you can't do something, then you don't say you're going to do it. So we don't really have the idea of being dependable. And I immediately felt incredibly convicted and also incredibly intrigued. So I said, okay, well, help me understand this, Nick. I said, later today, we're gonna go play kickball and throw Frisbees and do a bunch of stuff. And if I said to these students, hey, you guys, I'm gonna need when we're done to pick up all the Frisbees and the kickballs, like what would they do internally? And he said, here's what they would do. They would ask themselves, is there any reason that I would not be able to follow through picking up these balls if I say I'm gonna do it. He said, if they can think of a reason, they won't tell you they'll do it. But if they tell you they'll do it, you'll never have to worry about it. They'll pick up every single ball on the field. I immediately felt called to do student ministry in Slovakia. It was amazing, right? Like, are you kidding me? He said, no, it's just our culture. And so we have this saying around our house every now and then. I'll look at our boys and I'm like, hey, let's all work on being good Slovaks. Let's do what we're gonna say we do. Let's be a people of integrity. Let's have words that back up our actions. And it's incredibly convicting to know that there are people in other parts of the world, this is kind of just their rhythm of how they live. But shouldn't we as Christ followers be marked the same way? That when we say something, we mean it. That we have integrity with our words, therefore not needing to be a people who are marked by vows, oaths, or promises. Let's keep going, the second part of this passage. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And even people who don't even know a lot about church or the Bible have probably heard this verse. Hey, didn't Jesus say if somebody slaps you, you're supposed to let them slap you again? Like I've heard people ask me that before. So we're gonna have some fun unpacking this. But before we get to all the, the slapping, let's talk about the eye for the eye and the tooth for the tooth part, okay? So let's bring some clarity to this. An eye for an eye. Again, this is Old Testament. Was the legal system's way of distributing justice with the intent to keep retribution from occurring in people's personal lives. That's the heart behind this law. If you live in a society that are no laws and they're not enforced, eventually you're gonna have anarchy. Eventually you're gonna have people who are taking the law into their own hands. And so in the Hebrew world of the Old Testament, this law was intended to keep that from happening. That if somebody wrongs you, there's a legal system that you can trust that will enact justice. If that's an eye for an eye or if that's a tooth for a tooth. And so this law actually brings about a more civil society, a more peaceful place to live, because again, it's keeping people from having to do that themselves. And so let's make sure we understand what Jesus isn't saying. Jesus is not prohibiting the administration of justice, but rather forbidding us to take the law into our own hands. Sometimes this passage has been misinterpreted as a basis for passivity. 
The Christians aren't ever supposed to be involved in anything that would enact justice or that would see justice through, but, but that's not what this passage is saying at all. Jesus is not prohibit, prohibiting the administration of justice. That in any society, you've gotta have laws and you've gotta have people who enforce or who enact those laws. And, and some of you do that. Some of you serve in law enforcement. And can we just say thank you? We understand the sacrifice that takes to be the individuals who make sure that justice takes place in a society. And we say thank you for that. Some of you serve in our nation's military and, and you enact justice and you meet injustice with justice. Or so you, you free people from oppression, not just here, but literally all over the world. And that requires great sacrifice on your part. And those of us who don't make that sacrifice say thank you because we benefit from you being willing to make that sacrifice to administrate justice. And in any society, you have to have laws. And if you don't have laws that seek justice in the face of injustice, eventually what happens is people take the law into their own hands. And what Jesus wants us to see here is that that's not God's way. That God's way is to have laws. God's way is to have justice. God's way is to make sure that people who are oppressed are freed. And God is then challenging us to not ever be a people who would usurp that entire process and just take the law into our own hands. That's what Jesus is going after here with the whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But now let me tell you what I want to challenge you to do. But then he gets into the whole slapping of cheeks. I'm not sure if this trend is at your home, but in our home, I think our boys saw this on YouTube, they started slapping, slapping each other in cheek with tortilla shells. Is that just my home? Okay, it's neither here nor there. I don't advise it, but for some reason they thought it was fantastic. Oh, you have to hold water in your mouth. I should have brought them out here and let them do that for you. It's fantastic to watch, okay? I totally digress. But anyway, the whole point of this, this uh, cheek slapping, and am I supposed to really turn the other cheek and if somebody's beating me up, am I just supposed to stand there and let that happen? So let's talk about that for a second. It's kind of the third little thing I want to point out. Jesus is not saying to let someone else beat you up. I think we need to talk about this. So I grew up in church. I loved the church I grew up in. I loved all my Sunday school teachers and student pastors. And, and I was a kid just like every other kid, a teenager just like every teenager who did dumb stuff and made plenty of mistakes. But like I kind of wanted at least try to live for Jesus and put God's word into practice. And so if there were verses that I wasn't really sure what to do with, like I pondered these verses sometimes. Like, and this was always one of those verses. You know, I was always wondering, like, if, if this ever happens to me, am I just supposed to stand there and let somebody pummel me? Or am I supposed to do something? Now, unfortunately, before I had reached a conviction of what I was supposed to do in this particular situation, the sixth grade brought the situation into my life. And so one day in the sixth grade in PE class, now, I don't know how your middle school did this growing up, but in the late 80s and early 90s, when we went to PE, they made us all change clothes in a locker room. What a terrible idea. I don't know who came up with that. But what could go worse when you put a bunch of sixth grade boys in a locker room and let them change clothes before they go play dodgeball? Anyway, so that's what we had to do. And so we come back in from playing dodgeball and now we're changing in. And there's this one kid in my class, his name was Joey, and he got picked on a lot. And I kind of tried to be Joey's protector, not because I was you know, big or bad or threatening, but because his locker was beside mine and we sat beside each other in a lot of classes and I just didn't think it was right for him to get picked on. And most of the time, somebody made kind of like a, a, a snide comment to Joey. He's like, come on, man, cut it out. And you know, everybody kind of went on about their day. But on this particular day, um, one of the kids in our class named Eddie decided he was just gonna go after Joey. He was, gonna pick out, he was just gonna pick on Joey in the locker room while we're changing after P. Did I mention that detail? Okay. Now, Eddie, how do I say this? Eddie was the one kid, I think every middle school had him, that we're in the sixth grade and Eddie has a mustache. Okay. 
Eddie has hair in his armpits. The rest of us did not. We all talked like this. Eddie did not talk like that, okay? I'm fairly certain Eddie drove himself to school every day in the sixth grade, all right? Middle school had been a tough season for Eddie. So let's just put it that way, okay? He had muscles, he had a deep voice, and he was incredibly intimidating. And that guy decides to pick on Joey. And in that moment, I just decided this probably is not going to end well for Joey. I should probably say something. So I said something in effect to Eddie. Hey, man, why don't you just leave Joey alone? Well, Eddie did not like that at all. And so what Eddie proceeded to do was punch me as hard as he possibly could, like right here in my face. Now, I didn't know what to do in that moment because two thoughts crossed my mind. One, you could run. I was a little slow as a sixth grader, if I can be honest with you, okay? So that would not have worked. Two, you could fight back. He'd have killed me in less than 10 seconds, okay? So I didn't want to instigate this any further. But in real time, I'm trying to figure out what am I supposed to do? I just got punched. And I did the worst thing you can do if you ever get punched. This is a really good life lesson, okay? If you ever get punched, there's a lot of things you can do. There's one thing you should never do. That's the one thing I did. If somebody punches you in the face, never, ever look at them and smile. That's what I did. Because see, if someone punches you and you look at them and smile, here's what they think. It must not have worked. I better do it again, okay? So Eddie proceeded to punch me again. Now, he didn't go New Testament. He didn't go to the other cheek. He went to the same cheek again, all right? And he popped me again. And at that point, I started crying, all right? That, that brought on the tears because it really hurt. And thankfully, my, my PE coach stepped in and, and pulled Eddie off. And they went to the principal's office. And later that day, Eddie and I had a very constructive conversation, okay? We kind of worked everything out. And uh, we ended up staying in school together, graduating. No, no issues with Eddie at all. He apologized all as well. But, but it just kind of brought up that situation in my life. And then now as a parent, like we, we talk about these things with our boys. And I would encourage you to talk about these things with your sons, your daughters, your grandkids. Hey, don't be an instigator. We're, we're supposed to be a people marked by peace. But if somebody needs to be stood up for, you, you, you can stand up for somebody. If somebody begins to attack you, you need to stand up for yourself. Like there's, there's sometimes just a little bit of wisdom. So what Jesus is trying to help us see here is, is not to be those types of people who, who seek out things, who instigate things. But he's certainly not saying let somebody just take advantage of you. Now here's the principle, big principle for this entire passage. When I am wronged, I can choose forgiveness or I can choose retaliation. Not if you're wronged, it's when you're wronged. You're going to be mistreated. People are gonna lie about you, make stuff up, betray you, all the things. And when that happens, everything in us wants to retaliate, wants to get even, wants to settle the score. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And what Jesus wants us to see is when that happens, you gotta choose forgiveness. You gotta choose to forgive them. And, and listen, for so many of us, we love the fact that the cross cancels our sins, the sins that we've committed. Jesus died for those sins. Here's what we struggle with. It's also the sins that have been committed against us that the cross canceled. So, so many times in our lives when someone does something to us and we can't forgive that person, can I tell you what we're essentially saying to Jesus? Your death on the cross is not enough. It wasn't sufficient. I'll take this into my own hands and I'll handle it. 
And never forget, Colossians teaches us this, that the basis for our forgiveness is not whether or not someone deserves it. They don't. The basis for our forgiveness is the forgiveness that we have experienced in and through Christ Jesus. Someone stopped me in the lobby after the last service. and like, man, I needed to hear that. I literally couldn't sleep last night because somebody mistreated me at work last week. And all I've been trying to think about is how I could get back at them. I said, exactly. God's word is so pertinent to our everyday lives and real life situations. And he said, I'm gonna offer that person forgiveness and I'm gonna leave it up to the Lord. And I said, exactly. When we're wronged, we have to make that choice. Why? Because of the forgiveness that we've experienced in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the last part of the passage we're looking at today. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You ever heard the phrase, go the extra mile? Well, that particular phrase comes from this passage that we're reading today where Jesus talks about this. So let's unpack it and get some details for what's happening here. You see, Roman citizens or soldiers could command anyone else in the Roman Empire to carry their things for one mile. Remember, the Hebrew people are living in their homeland, but it's occupied by the Romans. They're part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was made up of an intricate system of roads, and these roads all had mile markers all over the Roman Empire. And if you were not a Roman citizen, you were a subject to those who were in the Roman Empire, which meant for a Hebrew, a Roman citizen or a Roman soldier could command you to take their stuff and carry it, their luggage, their bags, whatever it is they had, for a mile. This was a great source of anger, frustration, and shame for the Hebrew people. And just think about the practical implications. I mean, if somebody stops you and says, hey, take this stuff for a mile, you've got to come back a mile. You're, you're basically losing your entire day. And, and Jesus literally has the audacity to look at them and go, hey, the next time somebody tells you to take something a mile, you take it too. Now, why would Jesus tell them that? It's a really powerful principle. Jesus is empowering people who do not have the formal authority or power. He's empowering them. They have no authority. They have no power. They're not Pharisees. They're not Sadducees. They're not Roman citizens. These are everyday, ordinary people. And Jesus is literally taking something that is a source of shame and hurt and anger, and he's challenging them to do something about it. And in doing so, he's actually empowering people who have no authority. Say, well, how is he empowering them? Well, he's saying that even when you are not in charge, you're still in charge. It's a very empowering principle that's all over the New Testament. It's all over the four gospels. Never forget, Jesus is talking to people who have no status in society. Jesus elevates women and their status in society. Jesus is constantly talking to people who have no power, they have no status, they have no family title, and he's saying things to them that's empowering. He's helping them understand, hey, you may not be in charge in this particular dynamic, but you can ultimately be in charge of how you handle yourself, of the attitude you have, of the choice you make. Someone may force you to take one mile, you may choose to go two, and guess what you just did? You flipped that entire dynamic. You're now in charge of the situation. The person who thought they had authority over you is no longer in charge because you're choosing a higher value than someone telling you what to do. And that's so relevant to our lives today because most of us are never going to be in a situation where we have all of the authority, all of the power, all of the title. In fact, if you ever find yourself in that position, 
run. All right? That's not good. You don't need to be in a place where you have all of the power, all of the control, all of the authority. We're all going to be in some type of dynamic where somebody has authority over us. We're going to be in some type of dynamic where somebody is telling us to do something that we don't want to do. Students, that's called school. Employees, that's called work. It's called having a boss. If you live in a neighborhood, it's called the HOA. Am I right? Okay. All right, really? You're sending me another letter about that. Glory to God, okay? So in some situation, there's somebody telling us to do something. And everything in us, when somebody starts telling us what, what to do, we want to push back. We want to fight back. We want to assert ourselves. We want to break through that particular dynamic. And Jesus says, and guess what? There's a way. Just serve them. Just love them. Just do more than what's being asked. See, no one gets to choose the attitude of your heart but you. No one gets to choose your response but you. No one gets to choose what you will do with that particular set of instructions except for you. Do you see how empowering this is for people who had never known what that was like? Do you see how empowering this is for those of us gathered here today to recognize, wait a second, I can be in a situation where I'm not in charge, but ultimately still be in charge because of how I'm choosing to respond and conduct myself. It's an incredibly powerful principle. So here's the application I want you to jot down today. When you do more than is asked or expected from others, it's first and foremost for Jesus. See, the reason why so many of us struggle with doing more, going the extra mile, whether it's at work, at school, or with the HOA, is because we think we're doing that first and foremost for other people. But it's all over God's word. Again, the book of Colossians says, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord, as your worship. That when someone asks something of you, go the extra mile as a way of worshiping Jesus, first and foremost for him. And this is such a powerful principle. It's a principle that if God's people put into practice, it would mark us in society as different for all of the right reasons. Hey, if you have a job, do more than is asked or expected. For your boss, it's a jerk. It's not primarily for he or she anyway. Hey, if you're a student and you get asked to do something, do more than is asked or expected. Not for your teacher or your coach, but first and foremost, for Jesus. In everything you do, if you will go the extra mile, that is a way to worship Jesus. And for some of you, that's really good news because you think worship, that's a few songs we sing on a Sunday and music's not even really my thing and I don't even know how to worship. Let me give you a great way to worship. Go the extra mile. And everything you do, first and foremost for Jesus. And then for those of us who are raising kids, maybe you're a grandparent, you have great influence in your grandchildren's life. Hey, can we instill this value in them? I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if 50 years from now our kids became the next greatest generation because they were marked as a generation that always did more than was asked or expected of them? At work, at home, in the marketplace, school, in the community, in the nation, for the country. See, I really believe that now is an amazing time to be alive. I also think now is an amazing time to be walking with Jesus. And I think now is an amazing time to shine our light brighter than ever before because can I tell you what's happening in our nation right now? People are looking. People are open. Did you know God is beginning? It's just kind of starting to drop his reign in the revival. When you can tell like a little mist starts to fall and then there's a rain and then the floodgates open. 
Do you know God's up to something in our country right now? It's starting. People are hurting. People are looking. This past spring, it didn't matter what church you talked to and what part of the country. Here's what every church said. We've never had more people on our campus for Easter. Why? People are looking. People are hurting. People are hoping. People are wondering. Is there something different about these people who gather in these buildings every single week? And can I tell you the answer to that question is yes. But can I tell you the way that people will most tangibly see that? It's probably not in this room worshiping with us. It's probably outside of this room as you go into the world marked by Christ and you actually look in every situation. How can I do more than is asked or expected of me? How can I live my life first and foremost for Jesus and shine my light in a way that brings glory to him and points others to him as well? Hey, would you bow your head with me this morning? I know some of you are here and... Uh, The whole idea of forgiveness is hard. Maybe in this moment you could confess that and just say, Jesus, I'm gonna leave this up to you. I'm gonna forgive them. I'm not going to seek retaliation. Some of you here, you're convicted a little bit that you've been a little too flippant with your words. And Jesus is saying, hey, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be marked by integrity. And maybe the idea of Shining your light, first and foremost for Jesus, going above and beyond that extra mile for Jesus. It's a powerful paradigm shift in your life. So Jesus, as we consider your words this morning, may we confess when we don't measure up to what you've called us to. And then, Lord, may we confess that we don't want to seek to put this into practice in our own strength, that we need the power of the Holy Spirit. That as you live these powerful truths in and through us, our lives look different. And Lord, our lives don't look different in a way that reflects positively on us. Our lives look different in a way that shines light on you through us. And so Lord, that's our prayer. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to our life. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.